We're in Hebrews 9, if you're not already there. Our series this year, it was actually started last year, is called An Anchor for the Soul. And this is an incredibly powerful section of Scripture. And I want to give you a new memory verse we're going to look at for a few weeks together. It's Hebrews 9, 16. It may not make sense when you first read it. I promise before you go home today, it should make sense. Let's say it together, okay? No blanks. Let's just say it. For where there is a testament... There must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Now, that's probably not language you use a whole lot, the death of a testator. What does that really mean? Well, we're going to unpack it. Two weeks ago, I brought you a message called, What's the Point? And we said, true disciples of Christ have a superior priest in a superior place with superior promises. And we learned that because of a new and better covenant with God through Christ, we receive a new nature. And we did. A few weeks ago, we had folks receive a new nature that very day, from the external works to the internal transformation. It was a beautiful thing to see. We get a new knowledge. One was just religious. It was sort of all up here. Now it's relational. We can walk with God. And then this is the biggie. And this is the one that I probably got the most letters about or or, uh, correspondence, emails and such about. And it was a new forgiveness. And I'm so happy to tell you that we had some people that found and gave forgiveness a few weeks ago when they understood that one was temporal. In the old system, it was temporal, but in Christ, it is eternal. And you gotta learn to let some stuff go. And quit talking about this garbage about forgiving yourself. If God has forgiven you, you are forgiven. That settles the issue. Don't keep bringing it up. You remember I closed with what sin? You keep bringing up the same stuff to the Lord, he just says, what sin? Today, I'm hoping that like the first hour, I'm hoping that God's gonna touch you and stir your heart with this theme, his death, our deliverance. His death, our deliverance. Years ago, I did a Bible study on this, and I talked about it. I've actually done some of this with GCA, and I asked the question, did Jesus really have to die? Did Jesus really have to die? And so today I'm going to sort of unpack this, and I'm just going to give you a few sort of core truths because we're going to read a lot. But I want to set the stage showing you something that all of our girls had at one time. I bet we bought the first one of these certainly well over 20 years ago. Everybody know what this thing is right here? This is a little fancier than the one Heather had, I must admit. But when she was a little girl... She just had to have this, and then her sister Holly after her just had to have it, and then Hannah had to have it, and they kind of got fancier and fancier, but when you get your easy-bake oven home, you guys will remember you have to take the screws out of the back, and you have to put a 100-watt light bulb in it because that is the heating element for an easy-bake oven. At least it was back in the day. Have any of y'all been blessed with the concoctions that come out of an easy-bake oven? (laughs) Nightmares, right? Nightmares. I know. I know. I'm with you. I remember Heather was so excited and she and Cindy took the little powder that came with the Easy Bake and the water and they put it in this pan. And then you took this pan and I figured this out the first hour. So you put this thing in the middle and you turn it on. I think you turn it on just by plugging it in. I don't think it has, yeah, these are fake. So you plug it in and you wait. And 47 hours later you find that the, the, the gooey, powdery substance has risen like a millimeter. And then your precious little daughter pushes it. Let's see. It only goes through one way. Yeah. She pushes it out the other way. And then 
you take your knife and you attempt to cut through the gooey battery treat. And then, parents, the biggest ask of all, you have to pretend to like what she just served you. And I know I'm saying she. Some of you dudes could have one of these too. Let's just not talk about that. We're not that kind of church. So anyway, um, I'm just kidding. Boys can bake. It's okay. Here's the thing, though. That doesn't make you a girl. All right, so here's, here's the deal. You did not expect a gourmet baked item to come out of this machine, did you? I didn't expect to be wowed. I didn't expect to pick up the phone and call the cake boss and say, have I got a recipe for you? I didn't expect that Gordon Ramsay would come with flashing bells and whistles and say, well done, children. This is the best that's ever been made. Why didn't we expect it? Because this is a copy. I used the word from the Greek a few weeks ago, an underexample that was in chapter 8. This is not the real thing. This gets your kids ready. Now, two weeks ago, no, last weekend at Sophia's first birthday party, Heather actually baked all the cakes, the smash cake and all. She had three or four cakes, and they were phenomenal. They were delicious. She made them, I think, from scratch. I mean, they were glorious, and I promise you, she's come a long way in the last 20-some years from the Easy Bake days because that's the real thing. She used an oven, and yes, we even have a gas oven. Take that, Joe. Listen, we have, and it's just, it's incredible to me that people would ever think, well, this will get the job done. Why? If you can have the real thing, why would you use this? And yet, this is what people are doing when they try their religious rituals and practices apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your faith is no more real than an easy-bake oven. Why would you have an easy-bake faith when you can have the real deal? Christ's death has done it once for all. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at uh, verses 1 to 15. We're going to look at the whole chapter. We're going to look at 1 to 15 very quickly um, and, and kind of by way of review because it really restates what we've already been learning. And I don't, I'm not in the business of going back and just hashing it over and over and over and over and over. But remember, it was very powerful to restate things in these epistles, in these letters, because people were by and large not reading. They weren't taking these scrolls home. These were kept in the church. And so you said something, then you said it again, and you said it a third time. And that's true for us today. We learn by repetition, by hearing over and over, seeing over and over. And so The first 15 verses are cool. They give us some incredible things, some visuals, but they're visuals of the easy bake. And the writer's transitioning in 16 and following where we had the memory verse and saying, look, it's a new day. You don't have to go back to that stuff. You don't have to set it up the way you used to. You don't have to watch the light bulb for the next X number of hours. You you can have the real thing. Don't settle for less than God's best. And if you weren't here to hear those teachings, just go back. I did a three-part on uh, seven, and then we were in eight with what's the point. You can go back and listen to all of that stuff. But was it really necessary for Jesus Christ to die? And then I will add, of course, to be raised. And the answer to both of those is absolutely yes. It was necessary. So stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to do a little bit of running commentary in the first half of the chapter. It says, then indeed, so we're talking about the new covenant. The old is gone, it's vanishing away, and the new has come. Then indeed, even the first covenant, and I want you to think about when you hear that, Old Testament. Covenant, Testament, we can use those words, we can swap them 
Same word in the Greek. We can swap them. So in the Old Testament or in the Old System, even the first covenant or first testament had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Now that was called the tabernacle at first. It was a tent. Later, they stopped putting it up with cloth and they erected a structure, but it was the same concept and that's called the temple. Same thing, same concept, okay? It says, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which there was a lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That also um, is the holy place. That's what the word means. I grew up going to church, worshiping in the sanctuary. Now we call them the worship centers in most places, but I call it, we call it the sanctuary, the holy place. And then you had a little room at the back end of that, a little cube, it was called the holiest place or the holy of holies. So the holy place, sanctuary, and the holy of holies. So that's what he's talking about. He says, behind the second veil, so you had the entry door, which was the first veil, into the holy place. Behind the second veil, which was rent or torn when Jesus died, the part of the tabernacle is called the holiest of all or holy of holies, which had the golden censer, like the prayers going up, the Ark of the Covenant, the box overlaid with all sides with gold, which in which were the golden pot that had the manna. Y'all remember that? Aaron's rod that budded, tablets of the covenant. That would be the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his own hand that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. Above that mercy seat, y'all remember, were the cherubim. Their wings kind of came over and their glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we can't speak in detail. What he's saying is, all right, I know y'all are Jews. You know this stuff. The writer says, remember what the priest used to do. He'd go in here every day, over and over and over. Then once a year, he'd go in there. Now watch. He said, now when these things had thus been prepared, the priest always went in the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Had to wash sin, wash sin, wash sin, wash sin. But into the second part, uh, the high priest went alone once a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. He went once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself. This dude's a sinner. You're putting all your trust in him. He's a sinner just like you. And then for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, watch this, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was an easy bake oven. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Now he's talking about the temple. Y'all, he's saying, y'all are still doing this. They still got the temple up there in Jerusalem. This was done before the, the, the collapse of, written before the collapse of the holy temple in Jerusalem when the Romans destroyed it. And so he says, look, this is still going on. Concerned only with food, drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. And the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You don't have to keep doing it over and over and over. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, and it did temporarily, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, the New Testament, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who were called may receive the promise of eternal, what's that word? Inheritance. Now, pay attention to that word. That sets the context. Remember, when it's written, no chapters, no verses, so we don't stop here. No chapters, no verses, so there's an inheritance being talked about. But now watch how the inheritance is granted. And the same holds true down to today, y'all. This is no different than the way we do life right now and death. For where, this is 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop. He's sprinkling the book and the people. He's saying, this blood is cleansing. This blood is a covenant which God has commanded you. And likewise, he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. Y'all have heard me say this every single time we've done communion, and we'll have it again in two weeks. And according to the law, almost all things are purified, cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, in other words, the blood of the bulls and the goats, he would have then had to suffer often. In other words, you'd have to crucify Jesus over and over since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And sorry, Shirley McLean, you don't get to come back as a butterfly next time. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, what? judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Heavenly Father, this is an incredibly powerful section of your word. And we could spend many, many, many weeks here and, and probably just scratch the surface, just see the tip of the iceberg. But I believe the writer is trying to move the people forward and say, look, don't go backwards studying and, and being involved in all of this old stuff. There is a new and better way. His name is Jesus. The price has been paid in full. The sacrifice was made in blood. It is fully and eternally sufficient. I pray today if there's anybody here that's trying to work their way into a right place with you, they would raise the white flag of surrender, and by faith, they would trust in the finished work of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Okay, guys, so I'm going to take these cookies, and I'm going to put them way down low where I can reach them, because this is some deep stuff. This is not kindergarten Christianity right here, y'all. 
This is some deep, weighty material. But the, the concepts, if you will, are not that complicated. And you'll see how it comes together with the way we live life even now in a moment. Jesus, first and foremost, had to die so we could receive our promised inheritance. Okay? Jesus had to die. So we got all this set up in the first half of nine that says that was the old system. These things were done in ignorance. The priest had to cleanse for himself. Then he had to go every day for the others. Then once a year, the high priest went and there was this day of atonement, but you had to do it over and over and over again. And the inevitability of tomorrow's sacrifice proved that it was not eternally sufficient. It was a band-aid at best. It was an easy-bake oven. It was not the real thing. But in 1617, we see, for where there is a testament, there must be of necessity the death of the testator. For the testament's only in force when men are dead, because it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, there's a word necessary there. It pops up a few times in the text. Necessary, inevitable, absolutely required. And he says this idea of testament is the same word as covenant, which also in the Greek is the same word as will. Now, the way we say it in 2023 most often is his last will and testament. Now, y'all know what that is. That is a document that is making a declaration, a promise, a covenant, if you will. You are testifying, when I die, this is what I want to have happen with my, with my assets. The death of Christ not only sets believers free from sin, but it adds in the positive benefits of the new covenant. So what Jesus does is not just take sin away, y'all. He gives us an inheritance. Some people have the mistaken concept that Christianity is just about being free from hell and having a home in heaven one day. That's a wonderful reality. That's an eternal truth. But that is not the only reason Jesus died. Jesus died to give you freedom now, to give you eternal and abundant life today. And what we find is that a last will and testament only comes into effect when the one making it passes away. Listen to what John MacArthur writes. The benefits and provisions of a will are only promises until the one who wrote the will dies. And he says this great phrase, death activates the promises into realities. Now think about it. The end of verse 15 said, we are called to receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. I am a son of God. Cindy is a daughter of God. Many of you are children of God. Not because you deserve to be children of God, but God in his sovereignty, in his glory, in his grace, in his mercy, chose you before the foundation of the world and you have received him as your Lord and Savior. You are adopted into the family of God. You have full rights and privileges as a child of God and you have an inheritance, but you won't get it until the one who made the promise died. And I have good news. He's already died and he's already living again at the right hand of almighty God. So we have a guarantee. You know, it was over 28 years ago that Cindy and I set up our first will. Our first wills, plural actually, hers and mine. And we made it very, very simple. 
Everything that I have is hers. And everything that she has is hers. And that's a good way to set it up, boys. I'm just going to tell you. No, the reality is we set it up that way because what if something happened to us? We just redid all of that a couple of years ago. We finalized it about a year ago. And uh, you know what they told me? They said, well, there's going to be taxes and other things that your kids will pay. But if you want to give to a charitable organization, a 501c3, if you have something you love, we put Grace Baptist Church This is how serious we are about what God's doing here. We put Grace Baptist Church in there to receive before our children, before our children, the first fruits of anything that we may have. Now, that may be two Cracker Jack boxes and an old lazy boy, but whatever we have, we've put this church, and if you've never thought about legacy or estate planning, it's a powerful thing. We had a gentleman that did an estate plan. He passed in North Carolina. His estate paid for the upkeep of our cemetery in perpetuity. He left so much that it wasn't, uh, it didn't have to be millions and millions of dollars, but with interest and accrual, that paid for the maintenance for perpetual care for generation after generation. We had a 1,500-plot cemetery that we owned. And here's the thing. I know that that testament, that last will and testament, comes into effect when I or both of us pass. I, I get that. That's all the writer is saying. Jesus made a promise He proved to keep the promise by shedding his own blood in your place and in mine. And God proved that he accepted the promised sacrifice by raising him to new life. And so here's the deal. It's it's like when I think about Luke 15 in the prodigal son account. Y'all remember that, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. What a slap in the face when that kid goes to his dad and in, in essence says, hey, pops, you're not dying quick enough. How about you go ahead and give me what's coming to me when you kick the bucket? I mean, there's such a slap in the father's face to say, give me what rightly belongs to me down the road. And then he goes and he wastes it, and yet the father still loves him. And it's amazing because we went through drawing this up. with We went through a ministry and then had uh, an attorney to help finalize. But it's not sealed with an attorney. It's not sealed with a notary. We did have to have a notary public as well. It's not sealed with witnesses. Let me show you what it's sealed with. Verse 18 to 21, it says, even the first covenant, therefore not even the first covenant was was dedicated without blood. It says in 19 that Moses took the blood of calves and bulls and sprinkled for a symbolic cleansing. It says in 20, this is the blood of the covenant. It says in 21, likewise he sprinkled blood in both the tabernacle and vessels of ministry. And according to the law, most all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood. Are y'all following what I'm saying? The seal of the deal is the blood of the sacrifice. And I know the 2023 20, years, you hear that and you think, that is barbaric. No, my friend, that is beautiful. And I'll tell you why it is so beautiful. Look at how consistent the Bible is, okay? Look at how consistent the Bible is. Why did God choose blood as the payment for sin? Well, I got to take you all the way back to Genesis 2:17 to begin answering that question. God told Adam, even before the creation of Eve, Adam, you have all these trees in this beautiful garden called Eden. You may eat freely of them. Stay away from that tree in the middle. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will indeed surely truly die. The strongest way God could have said it, God said it. And yet very soon thereafter, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. But God said the wages of sin is death. 
He repeats it over and over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so sin brings death. That's A on your notes. Sin brings death. But God desired to give us life. And since blood has always been identified with life, blood is the most natural substance to seal the deal. So really, Jesus signed our salvation in his own blood. Why? Because life is in the blood. The Red Cross doesn't typically say, give the gift of blood. It doesn't say, we're the great vampire organization that wants to suck you dry. It doesn't say that. That's creepy. It says, give the gift of life. Because anybody that's ever had a transfusion understands that is life. And it's not just any blood. Depending upon your blood type, you could put the wrong type in and it could have disastrous consequences. And it's not just any blood that brings about your salvation. Bulls and calves and goats and sheep, their blood was proven to be ineffective in the long haul. Temporary at best, a Band-Aid, an easy bake, but not fully sufficient. Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for life. Atonement means reconciliation, satisfaction, or payment. So today, if you were going to go pay, let's say we didn't have all the credit systems we have, but typically today, if you're going to go pay, it would be with tender, legal tender, cash, right? Well, the cash payment, the payment that was much better actually than cash because it was black, backed by the authority of God himself is the blood of Christ. And blood, number three, or C, I think on your notes, blood always indicates that a significant price has been paid. Blood means someone or something had to die. And God meant his people to know how terrible their sin was. Every time they sinned, they offer a sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, every day, you see the people and the priests lined up with sacrifices over and over and over and over. And you know, uh, you, you see blood, you know something's happened. I see our boys out on the field. They got a good win the other night here at GC against Notre Dame. And there was some blood spilled, you know, some knees and some other things. But you see, uh, I had to do some rejuvenation pruning the other day. I had to go home. Uh, I think it was Thursday evening. Parker was at work, but Garrett, our other son-in-law, was available. So he came over, and I had chainsawed. Um, we, we have a bunch of stuff in the back. Anyway, I chainsawed a bunch of stuff. And some of it has, like, biblical-sized thorns. It's nasty. And I think I forgot to tell Garrett, or maybe he didn't remember, jeans and long sleeves, jeans and long sleeves, that stuff will bite you. Well, by the time we had worked probably, it was up in the dark, probably five to six hours getting all this stuff down and into the woods and cut up and all of this, he was pretty bloody. And I'm like, yes, I like having a son-in-law that's bleeding for the father-in-law. So I thought it was great. Um, you know, as long as he didn't get tick and Lyme disease and all that, I'm good with it. So the reality is the blood shows I've paid a price. I've been willing. Now, you see enough blood, the price is death. And all of my hunters know, all of us archers that are getting ready for season here in a couple of weeks, and we just had a great goose hunt this weekend and some dove hunting the previous weeks, you know that when you see the blood or when you're following the trail, there's a sacrifice and that's why as an as a outdoorsman, you stop and you give thanks and you say, God, thank you for the creation of this animal whose blood has been shed. And I know some of you that might not like that. The reality is if you eat meat at all, something has been sacrificed. 
And, and what we see in the Bible is that sin brings death, but life is in the blood. And life, is, the blood indicates this price was paid. And so Jesus shed his blood to redeem us from the penalty of our sin. Pastor Tim Keller, who's with the Lord now, made this observation. All other gods say, fail and you will die. Our God says, fail and I will die for you. All other religions say, our God is too great to die. Christianity claims our God is so great, he died in our place. And I would add, and he lives again. You think about the great transaction that Jesus did for you. He took your wickedness, your sin, and your death, and he exchanged it for his righteousness, perfection, and his life. He gave his life's blood so that you can live now and for eternity. And verse 22 is extremely significant, but I'm going to skip it. I'm going to come back to it when we take communion in a few weeks. But I, I want to remind you that these Old Testament, Old Covenant people were living under the weight of the guilt of their sin. And many of us still live under the weight of the guilt of our sin because we're, we're dealing with copies and patterns and examples and representations of Christianity, but we're not really walking with Christ. And you think, if I'll just do this, and that's why people will do this. They'll come into church for a season because things are broken. And when things get better, they disappear. I've been at this a long time. 25 years at this, I pretty much know the people that are in for their rough season and then out again when the wind stops blowing. And in for their storm and out again when it's good. I see it over and over and over. And it breaks my heart, but I think how must it break the heart of God? Because what we need to do is live in the finished work of Christ. And sometimes when people think the church is their salvation or religious activity is going to get it done, they are sorely disappointed. And they leave frustrated and sad. But the reality is when you give it over to the Lord, you find truth liberation. It's like that song, what sin? Give it away, confess it, and be done with it. But you have to receive the promise. You have to trust in the finished work of Christ. Yes, I believe he chose you. Yes, I believe God is sovereign and salvation starts and ends with him. But I also believe you have to receive. Or if you don't receive, you are therefore by default rejecting what God in Christ has done for you. So Jesus had to die so we could receive our promised inheritance. Second and final truth, it's brief. Jesus had to die to remove sin from us and remove us from sin. And those are two very powerful truths that are unpacked in the last five verses or so of this text. He entered that holy place, not the copy, but the real place called heaven, the true tabernacle where God sits. And you know what? He did it once. And if it didn't work, he'd have to go over and over and over, and you'd have to crucify Christ again and again and again. And folks, every time you confess something that's already been cleansed by the blood, you're saying, God, it wasn't good enough. God, your sacrifice wasn't sufficient. Jesus, looks like you got to head back to Calvary. But remember what I said a few weeks ago, Calvary 2.0 is unnecessary. We have everything we need from the first sacrifice. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus took his sacrifice all the way to heaven. God said, I accept. You say, how do you know God accepted it? What happened three days after he made the sacrifice? 
God, in his power, rose Christ. He raised him from the dead. See, the resurrection is critical because if, like any other religious leader, Jesus had simply died and said he was a sacrifice, there would be no way for us on this side of Calvary to know if he spoke truth. But because he died once, and then he tells us, you will die once. You will have one go round one time around in this life, and then you will stand before God and you will stand in judgment. There is no reincarnation mumbo jumbo here. You get one shot at it. How's it going to go for you when you stand? You're going to stand in one of two places, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, or the great white throne judgment. I don't have time to unpack all the implications, but I'm telling you, you don't want to be in the great white throne because God will look at your works and over and over and over, it will be proven that your works won't add up to get you into glory. Your good will never outweigh your bad because if you break one point of the law, the Bible says you've broken it all. You can't be good enough, smart enough, give enough, go to church enough, any of that stuff to be right with God. And so you will find yourself separated from God in a place called hell forever. And it's horrible. But if you're over here and you're robed in the righteousness of Christ and God doesn't let you in based on your works, but on his finished work, then you enter the joy of your Lord. Then there are rewards, and I won't get into all of that, but I'll simply say this. You will enjoy eternity in heaven with the one who went to prepare a place for you, John chapter 14. He went before us to prepare a place. I want you to just jot this down. should be the last things on your notes. When you trust in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, he takes sin away from you. But when he calls you home one day, he takes you away from sin. See, one of the problems is when we get saved, we live in perpetual guilt sometimes because we still stumble in many ways. And I get that. Like Paul said, there's this war that goes on within him. What a predicament I'm in. I don't do the things I ought to do. I do the things I ought not do. Why do I do this? And then he concludes rightly, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because I'm in the flesh. And the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so I'm walking more fleshly at times. And then other times I'm walking more by faith. But it's this back and forth. It's almost this dance. And it frustrates us until we realize everything is covered cleansed, paid in full. And so as soon as this happens and the Spirit convicts and we confess, it's done, it's over. Redo, restart, fresh, new. It's not piling up on top of us like it once was. There doesn't have to be this weight of sin. But, but we all have weaknesses, right? For some of y'all, I've picked on you, I've said that glowing red symbol that says hot now. It draws you like a moth to flame. For me, I love a Krispy Kreme, but I really love a DQ blizzard, man. When we were in Dobson, we had a little DQ when we lived in that little bitty town, and then it went under, and I thought, well, that's probably good that it's out of business. And then if they didn't go and build a brand new shiny DQ right there in our little town, and you know what happened? Well, you chose to put that sin that close to me. I'm going to have to indulge. And so just about every Sunday night after church, after the classes that we would offer, we would go and hang out at the DQ. And it's probably not the best thing to have the DQ that close. Now, Oak Ridge didn't have a DQ. Now there's a shiny brand new DQ in Oak Ridge just down the road from us. I'm like, what are y'all doing? I mean, you expect me not to give in when the sin is staring me in the face? And now it's the fall and it's time for pumpkin blizzards? Praise God! There's a king on the throne today. 
And after the concert tonight, Pastor Jeb, I say we all hit the closest DQ. I'm fur it too. But the thing is, people say, well, the sin's right there, but, but, but we put it in front of ourselves a lot of times. We allow it to come through, right? Our TVs and whatever else, our radios and whatever it might be, we allow it to come in. And one day God says, not only have I taken the sin out of you, I'm taking you away from the sin. That's going to be one of the glories of heaven. All of those temptations and other things go away. In fact, I'm predicting there will be heavenly blizzards with no calories. Praise God. I think that's Lewis chapter 1, verse 2. See, Jesus is coming again, verse 28, but he's already taken care of sin. And he then removes us from the very presence of sin because, you know, he's already taken care of the power of sin in your life if you'll trust him. He's already taken care of these things, and yet we live as though we still have to do something. But if we have any hope for forgiveness, any hope for a relationship with God, any hope for a home in heaven, we must trust that the testator testified, I will pay for their sin. He put it in his new covenant, the New Testament. It is written down. It is sealed in his blood. But we are not still sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting for something to happen because at Calvary, Jesus Christ actually paid the price and through his death, the testament comes into reality. And we don't stop there. My friends, you don't have to wait till the spring to celebrate a risen Savior because this fall, the Lord Jesus is alive and well and on the throne of Almighty God. And we can trust that it is finished and paid in full. And we can trust that through his death, we have deliverance. He had to die to, so that we could receive the promised inheritance. He had to die to remove sin from us and remove us from sin. That is good news. And if you are one of my brothers and my sisters in Christ, you ought to say, praise you, God. That is good news. Y'all went crazy last night during the first possession. Two minutes. Look what we did. Take that. Look at Apple's offense. We're going to mop the floor with them gators. And then you all got severely depressed for the next hour and a half. I know I was one of you. And I heard my sweet, precious, calm Cindy, like, become demonic just a few times. I'm going to be honest with you. What's wrong with you boys? You know, I heard her. It came out of her beautiful mouth. Because we put stock in those things. And, it, you know, it's fun and it's exciting. But when it comes to the one who paid the price for us, we go, hmm, isn't that nice? <laughs> we got to get excited about Jesus, y'all. And the fact that it is finished, as Jeff comes up, it was Wednesday, January the 13th, 1982. It's a true story of Air, uh, Air Florida Boeing 737 jet that left National Airport in Washington, D.C. during severely cold weather. They were heading down to warmer weather in the Fort Lauderdale area, but moments after takeoff, the plane hit the 14th Street Bridge and crashed into the icy waters of the Potomac River just two miles from the White House. The tragic accident that day took 78 lives. Immediately after the crash, six passengers were found to still be alive, clinging to a piece of the plane. They were all trying to stay afloat on the icy Potomac. Helicopters from the Coast Guard and Park Police came to rescue the survivors. 
They lowered a life-saving ring, one of those rings down that they can just sort of grab a hold of or slip around them. When they lowered it down, there was a guy that appeared a little stronger than the rest who grabbed the ring, but then he quickly handed it off to one of his freezing companions. They lifted them out of the water, and they did that again, and he handed away the ring, and again, and again, and again. And that gentleman handed away that life-saving ring every time another helicopter came around until finally there was one more man to bring out of the water. And as they circled around with the ring near the water, that brave, heroic man had disappeared beneath the ice. See, he gave his life that those others may live. It was an effective but deadly sacrifice And until reports would be released sometime later, the survivors did not even know his name. Now, when they learned his name, you may imagine that it was on their lips often. Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody in that situation handing you that ring? I knew I was going to tell you this story at the end today, and when I walked into the green room this morning after praying with my partners upstairs, I saw little Sophia there. She looks less like Frankenstein. She's actually walking around like a proper toddler now, I guess. I saw little Lucy, and I got some smooching from our little girls, and I thought, you know, Lord, if somebody, if somebody had died so that I could live and see these little girls, and if somebody died so that I could live and Enjoyed the things I enjoy, a Harley ride yesterday with my beautiful bride. Somebody died so that I could enjoy those things and so much more. I would want to proclaim their name. I would want other people to know who they are. I would want other people to know how brave and heroic and how amazing they are. And friends, God has called me to this church to remind you this morning that we have a rescuer and his name is Jesus. And we all have the privilege of proclaiming it to a watching world. Jesus Christ paid the price and took my place. His offering was effective because he took away my sin. And not just for me, but for the entire world and all who had come to him by grace through faith. And his sacrifice needs no repetition. His offering was deadly because he chose to give his very life's blood. And Jesus Christ is not still in that tomb. He was raised by the power of God the third day. And from the very throne room of heaven, he drops down a life-saving ring. And he says, would you reach up and grab it by faith and if you will I'll pull you out of the icy waters of your sin and your incoming and incumbent death I will release you from what is holding you down I will give you passage home I will give you safety and security and warmth and all that you need and yet so many of us in our arrogance continue to doggy paddle down below and say I've got this no worries I'll make it to the bank And men and women and precious children continue to go beneath the waters of death. And too many are going down without Christ. You don't have to be one of them today. You can trust him today. As they used to play at the old Billy Graham revivals, you can come just as you are. You see, it is not your worthiness 
that makes Christ drop the ring of grace down before you. It is His worthiness. The choir reminded us so beautifully of that today. It is His worthiness. It is His glory. It is His power that has made your salvation possible. And I would beg you in every way that I know how to beg you, do not leave this place and do not turn this broadcast off without bowing before God and trusting in Christ. I don't know what to say. You don't need magic words. You need a humble heart. You need a heart that is inclined to say, yes, God, I accept what you've done. And if you know nothing more than I turn away from my sin and self and I grab the ring of salvation, then tell him, pastors and counselors will be here to receive you. I don't understand why churches have stopped calling people to pray and inviting them to salvation. I don't understand that. Because every week here we're seeing men and women and boys and girls saying, yes, 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 I want to trust Jesus. You see, his death ensures your deliverance. Stand with me this morning. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.